in 2008, uh, the Pew Research Center uh, did a survey of thousands of adults related to trends in moving, like why people move around the country, their motives, uh, why they choose to stay in their hometown or move somewhere else. And uh, it was interesting the way they phrased the question. They, they asked people uh, about the place in your heart you consider to be home. Which I find very interesting that they asked it that way because even the phrasing of the question kind of admits that home is a very personal thing and in some ways kind of intangible. Uh, And the results of the survey were fascinating. Um, For example, 38% of people who responded to this said home isn't where they're living now. I mean, think about that. Four in ten people are like, I don't live at home. Uh, That's kind of interesting. But I think the reason is that um, the definition of home, there's a wide variety among people because in that same survey, uh, they, they asked people about where they considered to be home, and, and these were the answers. Uh, 28% said where they were born or raised, that's home. 22% said where they live now. 18% said where they've lived the longest. 15% where their family comes from. And 4% where they went to high school. Uh, so you can see there, the idea of home is not as simple as we think it is. Um, it's really a collection of, of feelings and experiences and relationships. There are like geographical elements of home. There are time elements. There are the structure that we live in that we call our house and even spiritual elements to what we consider home. And, and this, I think, explains why like you can be in your house but if the people who are home to you are not there, it kind of doesn't really feel fully like home. Um, you can actually feel a sense of homesickness, like on your own couch. Um, I've had an experience like this a couple of times when um, my wife Ashley and uh, our kids are like out of town visiting family, and I'm I'm here, and I come home from work, and normally our house is like you know brimming with noise and activity and voices and. Uh, screaming and <laughs> everything else that goes with little kids. But, uh, but like, I'll come in and, like, the blind, it's dark outside, but, like, the blinds are still open because I never close them that morning, and it's quiet and it's dark, and it's like, okay, this is my house, but this does not really feel like my home because the people who make this home for me are not really here. Have you ever experienced anything like that, any kind of that, that feeling? Um, the flip side can also be true. You can be somewhere away from where you actually live, But if the people who are home to you are with you, you can sort of feel like home, even though you're not where you actually live. So last week, we we began to explore this concept of home uh, in the homecoming story of the people of Israel. Um, And we were in the Old Testament. And what had happened is over the generations, the people of Israel had broken their relationship with God. They They had walked away from him. They had worshipped idols, they had abandoned him, basically said, we're not going to live our life as if you're God. And God had warned them for centuries, if you do this long enough, there's going to be a consequence. And basically what that is, is you're going to be kicked out of the promised land, the place that I set apart for you to be the the home for our relationship, like you're going to leave. And uh, the people of Israel ignored that for, for centuries, for generations. And eventually God followed through and allowed them to be exiled from Israel, from the promised land. Um, and the way that happened was the, the great powers to the east of Israel, the empires of Babylon and Assyria and Persia, 
came in and, and uh, overtook Israel. Here's a map, kind of a, the biblical world, ancient uh, Near Eastern world. You can see Jerusalem there. That's where uh, the people of God lived. And then the, the empires to the east there, Babylon and others, uh, they came in. And what they did is they made the Israelites move to Babylon. And this was a, a military tactic that is widely uh, documented outside the Bible called population switching. It was a control tactic. So these empires would come and they defeat a people and they thought to themselves, they're less likely to rebel if we make them live somewhere else. Because if they're on their home turf, like they're going to fight against us. So they would conquer a people and they'd literally switch them with another group. And so that's what happened to the people of Israel is they were forced to move to the heart of the Babylonian Empire, um, a foreign land. And uh, there's this song in the Old Testament that captures this moment of how the Israelites felt when this happened. Um, It's just this heartbreaking homesickness that they were going through and how they were being mocked by their oppressors. Um, And it's Psalm 137. And so I want to read this, just a few verses. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. That was another term for Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So they were longing for home. But they were longing for more than a physical space because Jerusalem really represented God's presence with them. And they longed to be with God and be with each other. They were homesick on every level, emotionally, spiritually, communally, geographically. And God had promised to bring them home eventually and restore their relationship. And in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that begins to happen. We, we begin to see the restoration of God's people and their reunion of relationship with God. And that's the thing. God is in the restoration business. This is what he does. He finds what's lost. He brings people home. He repairs what's broken. New life. And we're going to see a window into that today. So uh, turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Ezra 7. Um, Ezra is located in the Old Testament. Um, it's after the book of Second Chronicles. It's right before Nehemiah. Ezra 7, that's where we're going to start. We're going to jump around a little bit, but we'll start in chapter 7. So, in Ezra 7, we actually meet the person named Ezra. The, like the person that the book is named after, who wrote the book. Um, and last week when we started out in this series, we saw that the Persian emperor... Cyrus, he had a different policy. He was fine with people going and living in their homelands. And in fact, he encouraged the Israelites, go home to Israel. I'll even fund this and I'll help you rebuild your temple and everything. And that God had moved the Persian emperor to do that. So we started this story last week there. What we're going to read today is 80 years later when this person, Ezra, basically leads the second wave of Israelites coming home. And uh, essentially what Ezra's going to do is he's going to lead their spiritual homecoming. Because they, they had actually moved, a lot of them had moved back to Israel, but they were sort of geographically home, but their relationship with God was still in tatters. And Ezra is the person that God is going to lead to uh, bring about this spiritual homecoming of the people of Israel. So let's see what God does, uh, what he did in, in the life of Ezra. Starting in verse 6. It says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. Circle Ezra if you're taking notes. 
Uh, the reason it says this Ezra is that in the previous five verses, it's describing his lineage, his background, the fact that he's a priest. So this priest Ezra came up from Babylon, it says. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king, that's the Persian emperor, had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord uh, his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king, He'd begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Just a little side note there. Uh, They didn't have dates in the ancient world the way we do in terms of time. This is how they told time was this happened during this year of the reign of this king. This was basically trying to give as precise a date as possible for when Ezra returned to Israel. And we know when that was. It was 458 B.C because of how precise this was. This all actually happened. Um, Verse 10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So this section introduces us to Ezra. He's a priest. He comes from the lineage of spiritual leadership, and his giftedness is described. I would highlight this in verse 6. It says, He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. Um, The law of Moses was kind of Old Testament speak for Scripture, um, God's Word. Um, And so it's saying Ezra not only knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards, he was gifted to teach it. And and it, it twice says the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. I would highlight those two instances in verse 6 and 9. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. The gracious hand of his God was on him. That's a really important idea right there. Um, and it, it's, it's a biblical concept called providence. Some of you may have heard this word. It's not just a city in Rhode Island. Providence is God's protective fatherly care for his creation, including his people. Um, it's a really important biblical notion of who God is and how he relates to us. One theologian describes the doctrine of providence this way. He says this, the doctrine of providence tells us that the world and our lives are not ruled by chance or by fate, but by God. And that directly impacts our lives of faith, that we're not walking aimlessly through this world and we're just subject to chance and whatever happens. The Lord is governing things. And we see this in action in Ezra's life, right? God is leading a pagan emperor, the Persian emperor, who does not worship the Lord, to encourage the homecoming of Israel. And also God has grown up Ezra into the spiritual leader and he's now leading Ezra to usher in the spiritual homecoming of Israel. So this is God's providence at work. He's, he's orchestrating all of this. And Ezra is very well prepared for the task. In verse 10, it says he was devoted um, to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. I would highlight that, study and observance. So Ezra was committed not just to knowing the Bible, but to personally observing it, living it out. So it's telling us that Ezra was a capable, gifted spiritual leader of integrity, well prepared by God uh, to facilitate the spiritual homecoming of Israel. Um, And God's going to use him in very powerful ways. Um, Now, we don't have time to read everything in the book of Ezra, but if you keep reading right after this, Uh, there's a copy of an actual ancient letter 
from the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. Side note, what a great name, Artaxerxes. We were, uh, we probably spent too much time on this, but we were joking about that name, our staff, <laughs> this past week at the office and how, like, his parents probably called him Artie, but when he was, like, an angsty teenager, he wanted to be called Xerxes. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> this, is what we, this is what we do. Um, Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor, um, right after this in Ezra, you see this letter where he basically says, I'm going to support you in whatever way you need, Ezra financing, everything else. No one's going to bother you. You can go back to Israel and and rebuild your lives there. And so after that letter, skip down to verse 27, we see Ezra pray and thank the Lord for his providence of what's happening right now. So verse 27, Ezra prays. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. And who's extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. So he's ready to go back to Israel and bring these leaders with him because he just sees God at work in his life. Um, And so a point that I want us to grasp at this point in the story, I'm going to put it up here on the screen, is that God sets the stage for our spiritual homecomings. God sets the stage for our spiritual homecomings. This is what we're seeing in Ezra's story. Is that the Lord is always calling us. He is always inviting us to draw near, and he initiates this. He lays the groundwork in our hearts and our minds to come home to him. Did you notice I said homecomings, plural? Because I believe our spiritual life is marked by a series of homecomings. That's one way you could describe it. I mean, first and most significantly, there's the, the, the homecoming of when we truly acknowledge God for the first time. We turn toward him. We ask for forgiveness of our sins. We place our faith in Christ. We invite him into our lives. We yield our priorities to him. And, and as the New Testament says, we move from death to life. This is salvation. That is our first homecoming, our, our main homecoming of coming to the Lord. But there are many more times in our life, and, and they could be years or just moments, when we sort of turn, from, turn away from God, when we place our trust in other things, or we don't believe he loves us, or we don't know if we love him or we just sort of assert ourselves and take control and chart our own course um and we we turn away from god as i said that that can last for years it can last for five minutes but when we do that god is with us the whole time we are not lost he doesn't abandon us when we turn from him it's even in those moments and months years whatever it is god is setting the stage for our homecoming because he is our home and he's always calling us to return In whatever ways we've wandered away, he's always calling us to return. And we see this here in the the story of Ezra and the people of Israel. So so Ezra, he leaves Babylon. He he finally arrives in Israel. This is something he's been looking forward to. I'm going to lead God's people back into relationship with him. And he arrives at the city, and he's brokenhearted because he sees the physical manifestation of, of the broken relationship between Israel and their Lord because he sees the walls of the city and everything in ruins and under renovation. And, he, and it reminds him 
of the break that had happened in the past between God and his people. It reminds me, um, a, a couple of years after 9-11, I, I had a chance to visit New York and went down to Ground Zero. And at that point, it was, the, it was still just sort of a chaotic mess, just a hole in the ground. And it was just very uh, powerful, emotional moment because it was just this stark vision and reminder of what had actually happened. I think Ezra was basically having that moment when he first arrived in Israel. It's like, yeah, it's being rebuilt, but, you know, something really sad happened that caused this situation. And he he feels some shame about it. Um, So flip over to chapter 9. Um, chapter 9, verse 6, this is when, we'll put it up here on the screen too, this is when Ezra arrives in Jerusalem and he, he has this moment of, of reckoning with the extent to which God's people had abandoned him. And he prays. And look at his prayer, starting in verse 6. He says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes. And little relief to our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He's granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Um, So he's praying very honestly in this moment. Um, It's a very honest accounting of what's happened in the life of Israel. Um, how Israel turned their back on God and, and destroyed their relationship, and they've been living in the consequences of this. But God was gracious to them and has allowed them a remnant to return and rebuild. Um, and he writes this wonderful phrase, um, God gives light to our eyes. I would highlight that if you're taking notes. It's in verse 8. God gives light to our eyes. Um, that was a Hebrew expression that they used back then um, that had to do with being revived. Uh, it was used like if somebody was starving and uh, they finally had food, they would be described as their, their eyes brightened um, or light in their eyes now that they've been revived. And so Ezra was saying, despite the darkness of their past and their sin, the way they broke relationship with God, God has revived them as a people, breathed new life into them and into their relationship. And he also says God is a wall of protection. I love that phrase uh, in the last verse there. He's given us a wall of protection. Um, I think Ezra was revealing to the literal wall that was being rebuilt around Jerusalem, but more than that, that God is the wall. Uh, he's described that way throughout the Old Testament. In other books, uh, God even says, like, I'm a wall of fire around my people. And so God is protector. I think that's what he's getting at. Um, and so what I want us to take away, the main point from Ezra's prayer here, when he arrived in Jerusalem and faced the darkness of his sin and his people's sin, um, is this key idea here. An honest look at our sin will lead us to acknowledge our need for God. It will lead us to acknowledge our need for God. This was Ezra's prayer, right? He was looking at his sin and brokenness, and, and honestly looking at, facing the shame, and in that moment he was confronted with the incomprehensible 
beauty of God's gracious, restorative work that they did not deserve, but that was underway. You know, I think in our lives, sometimes we want all the good stuff from God. Like, we want to sort of skip over the hard stuff and like, well, just God loves me and salvation and eternal life and heaven and all that great stuff. And that's all true, and that is good, and that is hopeful. But the problem is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did is good news, but it doesn't feel like good news if we don't remember what the bad news is and what we've truly been rescued from and the fact that we've been rescued. If we don't really grasp our need for Christ, we will not give ourselves wholeheartedly to him. And we will kind of walk through life with a sort of spiritual entitlement of, well, God's supposed to love me and he's supposed to save me. So, you know, And that does not lead us to a place of submitting our lives to him and really enjoying him. And Ezra, I think, as the spiritual leader of Israel at this time, set an example for us. He he took a very honest accounting of his sins, the sins of his people, and it wasn't easy. But if we do what he did, we will not be crushed by that. Because if you remember who Jesus is and his love for you, you will see the blinding light of his love overshadowing whatever darkness is in your life or in your past. So, so there's a second phrase for you eagle-eyed people who saw the comma at the end of that. Um, an honest look at our sin will lead us to acknowledge our need for God, which helps us to see his love in a new light. Because you see the contrast. Gospel of John actually made this point. In, uh, when John was writing uh, in chapter 1, he's talking about Jesus, and he says this in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. He says, in him, that's Christ, in Christ was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness of our sin and ways that we abandon God and follow our own path does not overshadow the light of his grace and his love. He outshines it all. So Ezra could look at the darkness and shame of his past and his people and not be destroyed by it because he saw God's light destroying that darkness. And that's true of our lives too. You can do that in your life. If you remember Jesus while looking honestly at your sin and the things you're ashamed of, you won't stay in that place of shame or condemnation because you see his love outshining that. In fact, it says very explicitly in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not on the table. If you are in Christ, he is not looking to condemn you, even for for sins and ways that we wander away. Does he want us to come back to him and leave sinful patterns behind? Of course. But his love is always there, and it covers over anything that we have done that would alienate ourselves from him. Flip over to Nehemiah 8, if you have your Bible. Um, It's one book over, but a little historical tidbit. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one book. Uh, So in our Bibles, modern Bibles, they're separated out. But they tell kind of the same story goes on from Ezra to Nehemiah. Um, And the reason I want to flip to Nehemiah 8, there's a lot of stuff that happens after Ezra gets to Israel. But Nehemiah 8 is when Ezra kind of steps publicly into the role of, of spiritual leader of Israel, and this is the moment of Israel's spiritual homecoming when they all kind of say, we are going to return to the Lord. Um, And so I want to read a little bit from this chapter. Um, It says this in verse 1, All the people 
came together as one in the square before the water gate. That's, part, that's in Jerusalem. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Skipping down to verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the moment they as a community said, we are going to return to the Lord after generations of walking away from him. He is the Lord. This is his word, and we're going to worship him. And as you continue reading, after this moment, the people begin to follow the scriptures. Okay, what, what did God say we're supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? And, and so they're rediscovering all of this, some of them discovering it for the first time. One of the commands in the Old Testament that the people were called to observe was a certain feast. It was called the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Anybody heard of that? A festival. It was a feast. Um, It was something God said, I want you to observe once a year. And it was this really amazing thing where for a week, the Israelites would basically camp in their own yards. So they, they, you know, they had their house and for a week they would build a little like, uh, have a little tent or like a little shack that they would build and they'd go live in that outside for a week and everybody would do it. And the reason they did it was to remember and commemorate generations earlier when the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Uh, and God was dwelling in their midst, and they lived in tents. And, uh, and so it was a time to commemorate God's faithfulness. Um, and they still celebrate this, by the way, in Israel today. Here's a picture on the left that's kind of an illustration of the Old Testament era, the people of Israel uh, in their tents around the tabernacle, which is where God's presence dwelt. But here on the right, I mean, that's a picture in modern Israel of celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. They build these little shelters outside, and they live in them for a week. And it's it's this beautiful thing of reminding themselves that their home is the Lord and not to trust in the houses they've built, not to trust and put their security in their locked doors, but to trust really in the Lord for their provision. And so God had mandated that the people of Israel do this once a year to remind them of these truths. And in Ezra's day, they hadn't done this in generations. Like they had not celebrated this in living memory. And so they, in this moment of spiritual homecoming, they say, well, we've got to obey God's word and we've got to celebrate this festival. And so they look up how to do it. And they, they actually celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, for the first time in generations. And in verse 17, we see how it goes. It says this, the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua... Son of none until that day, which was a thousand years earlier. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Highlight that last phrase. Their joy was very great. They were rediscovering who God is and what it means to trust in Him. And they were experiencing a joy that God wanted them to experience all along, but that they'd walked away from. It's a moment of homecoming. They're experiencing this moment of homecoming, living in these little temporary homes. It's a very powerful moment. 
And I, I want to make kind of a, a third final point here that I, I think we should take away from this is that our home is with God and it's a place of joy. It doesn't mean everything's always easy, but the joy comes in knowing who he is and his love for us and, and, and living with that assurance of his presence and his love. So I want to just quickly kind of put all three of those points up and just review them for a second. God sets the stage for our spiritual homecomings. An honest look at our sin will lead us to acknowledge our need for God, which helps us to see his love in a new light. And our home is with God and it's a place of joy. So we see this in the story of Ezra, this moment of spiritual homecoming for the people of Israel. But once you notice these three things, you find that these are themes throughout Scripture. I mean, there's an example of it at this moment in Ezra's life, but it's all over the place. I would say probably most famously in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. One of the most famous things Jesus ever said. I'm sure many of you are familiar at least with the outline of that story where the, the son goes to the father and essentially disowns him and says, I just want my inheritance. I, I don't really care about you. I don't want you in this relationship. I want the money you can give me. So give it to me now, even though you're still alive. Give me the inheritance as if you've died. And I'm going to go spend it on what I want. I'm just going to walk away from you. That's how the story starts out that Jesus told. Now in the parable, the father represents God. So the son abandons the father. um, But the father is already setting the stage for his return. Because the father wants him to return. And is looking out on the horizon for him to come home every day, hoping he comes home. I think that's a very powerful thing for us to remember is God wants us to come home, even when we wander. He wants us back. He wants us to come home. And so the the prodigal son runs away. His father wants him to come home. Um, And the son, after wasting all of the money on this selfish life, this sinful life, um, just like Ezra, The prodigal son looks at his sin very honestly and his shame. And and he says, what am I doing? Like, I have sinned. I've ruined everything. I need to go home to my father. He sees his need. A look at his sin showed him his need. And he says, I need to go home. Now, he assumes he's not going to be welcomed back. And we do that, too. When we step away from the Lord in one way or the other, sort of, you know, is God going to, is he really going to welcome me back or is there always going to be an asterisk next to my name in his eyes because of this mistake I made or this season where I wasn't really living for him? We think that way, but look at in the parable, the son comes home and he's got this whole speech rehearsed. (laughs) God, you know, Father, I'm not worthy of you. Just let me work for you, basically. There's no way you'll welcome me home. Um, but this is what he encounters when he comes back is the open arms of his father. His home is with his father and it's a place of joy. The father actually throws a lavish party <laughs> to celebrate his return. Um, I love this artwork. I found this this week. It's, a, it's an artist who, um, uh, she's American, but she lives in Australia now. She drew that whole thing with pen. But I, I just I find it amazing because of the, the tattered clothes of the prodigal son and his face and his hands and this, his, you know, worn-out feet from the journey. And, and how, how often do we feel that way emotionally and spiritually, just in tatters and 
you know, we've just been so far, and how could he ever welcome us back? My friends, if you have a, a picture of God that is anything other than that, it's wrong. If you want, you know, just an image to grasp onto of what is God like, he's like that. Our home is with the Lord, and it is a place of joy. And that's what the prodigal is experiencing there. The, the Pew researchers that I mentioned at the beginning of the message asked that question, what is the place in your heart that you consider to be home? I think we have to ask that question of ourselves too. Maybe you've wandered from the Lord, wandered from home, um, and you've been trying to kind of find your way back, but you're knocking on the wrong doors. Um, or you know what the right door is, but you're not sure you'll be welcome if you knock on that door. Jesus is our home, and we are always welcome there. Jesus actually said, knock, on the, and the door will be open to you. <laughs> knock, and the door will be open to you. And he also said, I stand at the door and knock. I mean, I love that image of, you know, welcoming us, knock on the door, and I'll open it for you. And when, when he does, you know, then we find out he was knocking on the other side of the door, seeking us the whole time. Whether you've wandered from the Lord for a lifetime or a moment or a month, he invites us, you and me, wherever we are, wherever we've been, whatever we've done, he invites us to come home. 